uh, let's not move too quickly from uh, praising uh, the Lord as we were uh, to something else. Let's just take a moment uh, to continue uh, doing that just individually. Uh, bow before the Lord, uh, express to him uh, the praise and honor and glory uh, that is his due. Worship him. And in just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer. So let's just take some time to do that. Our Lord, you are a God of glory and deserving of all praise. You deserve so much more than we are able uh, to bring to you. And Father, we just ask that you will enlarge our capacity to know you and to love you and to honor you uh, with what we do and what we think and how we feel. Lord, I just pray that you will be the God who is to us, uh, that we will recognize that you are the living God, that you do glorious things, and that glorious things are spoken of you and properly ascribed to you, uh, both for your intrinsic nature, just who you are, but also for what you do. And Father, I pray that you will help us uh, to marvel and to never take for granted what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, that we are broken and your Son is the healer, and that we are sinners, but your Son is a Redeemer who is greater than all of our sin. And Father, I pray that this morning by your Spirit you will help us to feel that and to uh, embrace that reality, uh, not to make little of ourselves, but to make much of our Savior, Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that this morning you will open your word to us, help us to uh, properly understand it. Uh, Lord, there are so many uh, biblical theological issues in the passage, and there's, it's overlaid with so much tradition. Uh, Father, I just pray that you will help us to truly discern by your spirit uh, the meaning of your word, both scripture and the word that is Christ, uh, for we ask it in uh, his holy name. Amen. So if you have your uh, Bibles, uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 11. This is a familiar uh, passage to many of us. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath 
to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. If we had a lot more time uh, this morning, uh, what I'd want to do is I'd want to go through uh, Old Testament data about the Sabbath, want to uh, go through how uh, various Old Testament institutions and realities uh, point forward prophetically to Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd want to talk about how uh, in church history, the view that the Old Testament Sabbath became uh, the Lord's Day and how it shifted from the seventh day to the first day of the week, how all of that happened. Uh, and I'd want to talk about how in some of the reform traditions, which really have influenced our thinking uh, in North America today, the view of Sabbath that was endorsed really sort of appears for the first time in about the 1700s. Uh, so the view that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath is not an old view. Uh, it's not found in sort of the church fathers, and I will argue it's not found in Scripture. That is, in the New Testament, you, you never get a transfer from the seventh day to the first day of the week in terms of being a Sabbath. Now, all of that would be very important, uh, but I don't have time uh, to make that case. Uh, what I want to say is this. In the Old Testament, if you were part of the covenant people of God, if you were part of the nation of Israel, if you violated the Sabbath law, you died. The first uh, time we see this is in the book of Numbers when a man uh, goes out and gathers sticks on the Sabbath day and he is executed for doing so. Now that by itself should show you that Sabbath was taken very seriously in Israel. If you violated it, you died. And the question is why? Why was the death penalty or prescribed for not resting on the seventh day. Not one day in seven. There is no floating one day in seven principle taught anywhere in scripture, but on the seventh day. Why was that? Also, and this is all for free, uh, there also isn't any five-day work week and two-day weekend taught in scripture if you want to apply Sabbath law. Uh, Sabbath law is for on six days you shall work and on the seventh day you shall rest. The six days of work is as much part of the Sabbath law as the seventh day rest. So if you're going to apply the Sabbath law today, you better be working six days a week. And, and, if, you, and if you're not, then you have to figure out what allows you to split a verse in half uh, in terms of what you want to apply and what you don't. That's all for free. I have no idea what I was talking about. Uh, so in the old in the old covenant, you know, if you violated the day, you died. And, and the question is why? Why is it so significant? Well, it was so significant because Sabbath rest was one of the markers that separated Israel from all the nations around them. So in the prophetic literature, the prophets will castigate Israel for violating Sabbath. And the prophets will judge all of the nations for their violation of the law of God. But the prophets never, never, never go to another nation and charge them with violating Sabbath. And it's not because they weren't 
keeping it, they weren't. They, they had no idea that it existed in terms of a law. The reason the prophets didn't charge the nations with violating the Sabbath was because it wasn't their law to keep. That is, it wasn't part of the moral law of God. It was part of the covenant law package God gave to Israel, which designated them as being separate from all the nations around them, belonging only to God. And one of the ways that you demonstrated that was by resting one day a week, completely demonstrating your trust and reliance in God. By the time you get to the first century, the time of Jesus then, the Sabbath and kosher food laws and circumcision are part of this sort of these these small package of laws which are vitally important because they show the identity of Israel as being different from the nations around them. That's very important to understand. So the question then becomes, are Christians obligated to observe a Sabbath day? The, the Old Testament community of Israel was, are Christians obligated to observe a Sabbath day of rest? That is not the same question, note, as asking, should Christians set aside a period of sacred time every week to focus on God and to cease from regular labor? That's a pragmatic question. It's not the same. Saying, should we do something, is not the same as must we do something. Okay. So if you find it valuable to set aside, you know, one day a week not to do regular work and to rest and to focus on the Lord and all those things. That's fine. That's good. It can be very healthy. But does that equate everyone being obligated with observing one day that we call a Sabbath throughout the week? I'm going to suggest that the answer to that is no. Christians are not obligated to observe one day a week in terms of being a Sabbath day of rest. But I am also going to argue that Christians absolutely must observe the Sabbath, okay? So I'm arguing this morning from the scripture that we do not observe a Sabbath day of rest, but it is absolutely obligatory on every Christian to observe the Sabbath. So that's where I'm going. And I usually don't tell you where I'm going. Uh, usually we just all find out together you know, <laughs> as we go. But I want you to know where I'm heading so you can track with me and uh, see if we get there. I'm also compressing you know, about two hours of lecture into a 30-minute sermon. So if you have uh, questions, we can discuss them later. So what do we get from this text? Well, Luke, we're told that it's the Sabbath and Jesus is going out with his disciples. And they're in the grain fields and they're picking some heads of grain. And they're rubbing them in their hands. and They're eating the kernels. Now, doesn't seem to be anything wrong with this. You were allowed when you were out in your neighbor's grain field. You couldn't uh, harvest the grain with instruments, but if you were hungry, you could eat. So what they're doing isn't stealing. It's the first thing. But the Pharisees come along and say, you are violating the Sabbath day. How can you be doing this? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, at this point, I think a lot of people go wrong from the very beginning. And they argue that the Pharisees had imposed, you know, different laws about work regulations on the Sabbath, which were not binding because they sort of superseded what the actual biblical law was. Now, that's true. Uh, so, for example, you know, the, the Pharisees had 39 classes of work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath in the field, one of which was plowing. And they were so sort of nitpicky in terms of this regulation that if you were out for a walk on the Sabbath day, they said, you know, if you spit and your saliva landed on a rock, 
That was fine. Didn't break the law. But if you spit and your saliva landed in the dirt, you broke the law because your spit might make a furrow in the dirt, which is plowing, so you're working because plowing is work. Okay? Now that, and, you know, I don't know very much about the first century context. I don't think professional farmers were plowing their fields through the saliva method, you know, uh, unless they were trying to, you know, combine plowing and irrigation. I have no idea, right? But this is the sort of framework in which the Pharisees are working. And so a lot of people say, well, Jesus, you know, isn't actually, he and his disciples aren't actually breaking the Sabbath. But if that was the case, then what Jesus would have said is, Hey, listen, your man-made regulations don't apply. And he said that all the time to the Pharisees. But that's not what he does. In fact, what he says is, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. In other words, he says, don't you know what David did? David did something that was unlawful. David violated the law. So Jesus isn't saying, listen, your regulations don't apply. He's saying, yeah, if we're violating the Sabbath law, well, David violated the law too. Now, that gives you just the first hint of where Jesus is going with this. Because the only way that that analogy works is if what? I mean, what are the, what are the Pharisees going to say? The Pharisees' immediate response is going to be, well, yeah, that's David. Hey, who do you think you are? You know, that's, that's the anointed king. That's the king that God made the covenant with. You know, who do you think you are? In order for that comparison to hold up, you would have to be at least as great as David. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And now, of course, as the gospels unfold, we'll find out that Jesus is greater than David. But in order for this argument to work, he needs to be at least equally on the same footing as David. If David could do this, Jesus says, then we can violate the law too. Now, what was David doing? David and his men were out on a mission for God. What is What are Jesus and his disciples doing? Well, they are out in Jesus' ministry on a mission for God. And so some of the laws you know, are trumped by being out serving the Lord. Now, as I've said as we've been going through Luke, my temptation is to sort of always go back to Mark or Matthew, and I really want to focus on Luke. But Matthew says something, uh, it, Matthew records a response of Jesus that's very helpful in understanding this. Luke doesn't uh, bother, probably because Matthew is more writing to Jewish people who would have identified with this. Uh, Luke drops it. So turn to Matthew 12. This is essential to understand what Jesus is saying. So Matthew chapter 12. Same scenario, obviously. And uh, in Jesus replies about David in verses 3 and 4. And then in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 12, Jesus gives another example. Or, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? Or they violate the Sabbath? Or they break the Sabbath? And yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew is, or as Matthew records what Jesus says, Jesus is saying, listen, on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple keep working. 
and their working violates the Sabbath day law. So even in the old covenant, the work of the priests superseded the Sabbath day of rest ordinance because the priests are working seven days a week. The priests are working on the seventh day. They're desecrating the day, Jesus says. They're completely violating the Sabbath law, yet they are innocent. Why? Because in the temple, that's the place where God met with people and where there was mediation through priest and sacrifice. And so when the priests were serving God in the temple, that overrode the the legislation regarding the day. Jesus then says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Some translations will have someone, but it's actually, it's something, something greater than the temple is here. Now, Jesus is arguing now, not only am I at least equal to David, he's arguing, I am greater than the temple. I'm greater than the priests in the temple. I'm greater than the sacrifices in the temple. Everything the temple represents, I am greater. Something greater than the temple is here. Now, interestingly enough, then, what that means is, from lesser to the greater, if people in the old system could be priests in the temple serving God and desecrate the day and yet be innocent, then now that something greater is here, Jesus and his priests, all of his followers are are priests serving God. Jesus' followers now, in a greater sense, are able to violate the day. That is, not be bound by the old Sabbath law, and yet they are innocent, lesser to the greater. The smaller, less important order allowed you to trump the Sabbath day. Now that something greater is here, how much more so are the priests of God and the followers of Jesus Christ able to serve the Lord as a priesthood of all believers and violate the day? while yet being innocent. And notice, too, that uh, you know the priests aren't given another day off. There's no revolving, floating Sabbath. Uh, there's no, well, don't worry, priests will rest on Thursdays. It's they don't get Sabbath rest when they're on duty. They violate the day, and yet they are innocent. I think the argument that Jesus is making basically amounts to this. Therefore, you know, if old covenant priests are innocent of breaking Sabbath law for their work in the temple... Then new covenant priests are not bound by Sabbath law when they are serving in an order that is the fulfillment of the temple. In fact, it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In Colossians 2, 16, 17, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it for you. It says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Paul could never write that to Jews in the Old Covenant because they did judge each other with the penalty of death if you violated the Sabbath day in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you whether you observe Sabbath or not, Paul is saying. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The word that Paul uses for shadow, skia, is the same word that the author of Hebrews will use to describe the sacrifices of the sacrificial system. 
They were a shadow. Doesn't mean that they weren't important. It doesn't mean that they had no significance. But what it means is, if you look at the Old Testament sacrifices and you think they were the point, you completely misunderstood. They were not the point. And the author of Hebrews works very hard to make sure you understand that the old covenant sacrifices were pointing forward to the actual sacrifice of atonement, the only sacrifice in history that actually worked. You know, that's his argument. You know, all of these animal sacrifices, they were repeated endlessly day after day. The, the day of atonement was repeated, repeated endlessly year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Why? Because they didn't work. If they worked, you would need to offer another one. And that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is using to tell you, listen, believe it or not, after all of these centuries of sacrifices not working, there was a sacrifice that worked. It was the sacrifice of Jesus. It worked. So don't expect another one. You're not going to get it. Because there's no need. It actually atoned for sin. That's an incredible thing. There was a sacrifice that actually atoned for sin. It did it. And so there'll never be another one. Absolutely no need ever again. Never again will there be a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' sacrifice once for all. So the writer says, if you understand the sacrifices, you understand they were shadows pointing forward to the reality. The reality is in Christ. The sacrifice is the shadow. Christ is the son. The sacrifice was the promise. Christ is the payment. The sacrifice is the prophecy. Christ is the fulfillment. The exact same principle is true of Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was a shadow. The reality is in Jesus Christ. Something greater than the temple is here. Temple, priest, king, sacrifice, law, rest, all of these old covenant shadows, as significant as they were, were never ends in themselves. They were always pointing you forward to the reality of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 14, 5 and 6 will tell you that one person considers one day more sacred than another, someone else doesn't. He says, let everyone be convinced in their own mind. In other words, whether you want to observe a Sabbath day or not, it's really up to you. But you get something you could never say under the Old Covenant. Also, in the book of Hebrews, it's a very interesting argument that is made about Sabbath rest. And the author begins by telling you that, you know, in Moses' time, you had the Sabbath law in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. But they still were not at rest. Rest was bound up with being in the Promised Land. And so Moses, even with the Sabbath law, did not give the people rest. But then you had Joshua. And Joshua led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. And you're told a few times in Joshua, then the land had rest from war. Then the people of Israel had rest from their enemies. See, rest and Sabbath is bound up with being at peace in the Promised Land. But, even then, the author of Hebrews says, they were still longing for more rest. They hadn't yet had the fulfillment And then through the Psalms, you find that even in David's time, when now you have the monarchy, they're in the land, you have the the king, 
and you have the plans for the temple, and the offer of entering into God's rest still stands. Lord, so even in the time of David, even with all the Sabbath regulations, even with being in the promised land, you still haven't yet had rest. Because as the psalmist says, as God speaks through the psalmist today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in the wilderness or in the rebellion. Have a soft heart, be repentant. Because as long as it is today, the promise of entering his rest still stands. So by the time you get to the New Testament, they're saying, you know, you can still enter into the rest of God. You can enter into the Sabbath rest, the author of Hebrews says. So yet there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Well, how could that possibly be? They've been celebrating the day for centuries. It's because the day wasn't the rest. The day was the promise of rest. The day was the prophecy of rest. The day was the shadow of rest. The reality of entering into the rest of God is fulfilled, not in a 24-hour period. And why would we ever think that it could be? It is fulfilled by entering into rest through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where rest is. And this is why, you know, through the New Testament, you have this sort of this structure running parallel to the work-rest-Sabbath motif of the Old Testament, where the Old Testament, it's rest physically from your physical work. But in the New Testament, it's, listen, rest from your works. You will not be righteous through your works. You rest by faith. You are righteous through faith. You enter into eternal life through faith. It is not your sin. It is not your work. It is not your righteousness. It is just resting in Jesus Christ. That is how you will be saved. And it is that salvation which is the fulfillment of resting in God's grace in the promised land. So that it's not resting one day a week in Canaan, it's resting eternally in the new heavens and new earth. And how do we get there? It's through faith in Jesus Christ and not our work. And and so Sabbath is pointing us to Jesus. It, It is not calling us to time. It is calling us to Christ. And that will then affect our time. Because if Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and resting in him, The question is, how many days a week do you want that? Do you want to rest in Christ one day a week and then rest in your own works and self-righteousness the other six? No, it's it's how often do you want to rest in Christ? Well, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 300 and, and, and on this year, 366 days a year, right? I mean, it is, it is, there is never a time when you're not resting in Christ. There is never a time when you want to go back to the old way. It is always bound up with your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's, that's, you know, not just the seventh day. It's not the first day of the week. It's every day. Amen. Trusting in Jesus Christ because he is the fulfillment of, of Sabbath, rest is found in him and in no one else and nowhere else. And then if it becomes helpful to cultivate a day of the week where you're going to put aside regular activity in order to reflect on that, more power to you. Great, great. But the reality is the totality of the fulfillment of all that Jesus is should constrain us 
every day equally all of the time. So that we are not talking about negation. In other words, I would want to argue that the Sabbath principle in the new covenant fulfillment, it's not less than the old covenant, it's more. It's not giving up a day, it's gaining the other six. It's always resting in who Jesus Christ is. Now, this is, interesting enough, bolstered, not undercut, by reading the Ten Commandments. Because observing the Sabbath day is part of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. One of the things that's often overlooked is that the Ten Commandments are given twice. Once in Exodus 20, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the reason for observing Sabbath isn't the same. In Exodus 20, the reason you observe the Sabbath is because you're imitating the rest of God in creation. Genesis 2. But in Deuteronomy 5, the reason for observing Sabbath rest is because of the Exodus redemption out of slavery in Egypt. That's funny. Two, two versions of the Ten Commandments. How do you sort that out? Well, I think it's not that difficult, actually. I think that once you see that Genesis 2 is a seventh day that is unbounded, that is, you know, I mean, no matter how you interpret the days and and the formula and all the rest, there was morning, there was evening, there was the first day, morning, evening, second day, right? You don't get that in the seventh day. That is, in the seventh day, you don't get the there was morning, there was evening formula. In other words, the seventh day is not bounded. It's continuing. And so it was well understood, you know, by readers of, of Genesis you know, 2, that God's Sabbath rest, in a sense, was continuing, and people were perpetually invited into it. It was pointing forward to eschatological or end times rest. It was ongoing. You could enter into it. Share in the rest of God. Come into it. Live there. In Deuteronomy 5, where you have Exodus redemption... Of course, after Genesis 2, I know this is, you know, you need to go to seminary a long time to learn these sorts of things. After Genesis 2, you have Genesis 3, you know, and, and what happens in Genesis 3? What happens in Genesis 3? The fall into sin. Now, if God invites his creatures who bear his image into share in his rest, what happens to that, the once they've fallen into sin? Well, now it's disrupted. In other words, how do you get back into God's rest if you're a sinner and kicked out of the garden? You need redemption. You need liberation. You need exodus. You need to be bought by blood and sacrifice out of your slavery and brought to the promised land. And so when you align those two things, both the creation analogy and the redemptive analogy really are driving at exactly the same point. That is, if you are going to truly have Sabbath rest, you are going to enter into the eschatological rest of God, and you can only get there through the redemption that God provides for you. And so both of those things together justified or grounded the the old covenant Sabbath, creation, restoration through redemption. Now, where do you find, biblically, 
the fulfillment of those themes. Creation, new creation, purified new heavens and new earth, blood sacrifice, substitutionary lamb, freedom from slavery and fear and sin and self. and It's all the work of Jesus. Genesis 2 and Exodus are pointing you to Jesus. All of those realities are found only in Jesus. And those are the realities that ground the Sabbath day. So if all of those realities are found in Jesus, and those realities ground Sabbath, then where are you going to find Sabbath? Only in Jesus. So even the Old Testament law is telling you that when Jesus shows up, it's all about him. It's all bound up with who he is and what he has done to bring you redemption from your sin. Now, in case you're, you're still there or if you're not, just flip back to Matthew 11, or sorry, to Matthew 12. So Matthew 12, okay? And to me, this, is, this seals the interpretation. So Matthew 12, this narrative about uh, Jesus and you know, being the Sabbath, uh, Jesus being greater than David, greater than the Old Covenant. It's all fulfilled in Sabbath, or in, in Christ, rather. Now, so you have that event in chapter 12. Now, you do know that the chapter and verse divisions were put into the Scripture centuries after the manuscripts were written. Now, this should be relatively obvious, that Matthew did not take the time when he was writing the Gospel to write a really big 12 in the text, right? Uh, so these were added much later. So you almost have to remember, remind yourself when you're reading the Bible, read it without, especially the subheadings. They will be very helpful. But sometimes you need to remind yourself the subheadings weren't original, the numbers aren't original. It was one block of text. Okay. So if you erase the twelve, as if there's no break whatsoever, and you move back to eleven verse twenty-eight, you read this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. There is no way that someone familiar with the Old Testament can read those verses without the break and not see the rest Sabbath theme going together. Sabbath was about rest. Where do you find rest? Come to me. See, we, we've taken these verses as, as sort of the great evangelistic verses, and which is fine. I mean, they, they are evangelistic. Jesus is calling people to belong to himself. But what we miss is the nuance is that it's not just sort of come and find sort of existential rest. You know, I, I know that, you know, you have all sorts of existential angst and, you know, you feel like a cosmic orphan and, you know, there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of insecurity and there's a lot of, but you know what, you know, come to Jesus and, and he'll integrate your life. And, you know, that's all true, actually. It's not half bad, just not, not from these verses. You know, that's a true, true biblically. It's not what Jesus is saying here, though. What Jesus is saying here is come to me and find Sabbath rest. That's what rest is to these readers, to his hearers. 
It is Sabbath rest. He says it twice in case you didn't understand. Come to me and find rest. You will find rest. Small wonder the very next thing that you're being told about is how Jesus claimed to be greater than the Sabbath. Matthew 12. Jesus is here without any doubt claiming to be the only place where you can find rest. It's not in the day. Not go to the law and find the seventh day. It's come to me and find rest. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath law doesn't tell me what's appropriate. I tell the Sabbath law what's appropriate. I say what we can do. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, in case there's any doubt then, you have the second event in verse 6 of Luke 6. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching, and there's a man there whose right hand was shriveled. And so Jesus does this healing miracle. And now, but listen, we've seen all kinds of heal- healing miracles before already in the Gospel of Luke. So the question is, why add this one? Like, you don't really learn anything more about the power of Jesus by the fact that he can make the man's hand healed, right? I mean, you already knew that Jesus could do these kinds of healing miracles. So what on earth is the point? Well, the point is that this also took place on a Sabbath. And God is not going to allow Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath if Jesus has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to Sabbath law. In other words, the healing miracle demonstrates the authority of what Jesus said before. So this demonstrates, look, I'm greater than the Sabbath. You don't think so? Get up in front of everyone. And fascinatingly, too, he says to the Pharisees, he asks them a question they don't answer. He gives them the opportunity. Okay, guys, is it right to do good or not? And he looks around and no one answers. Okay, well, you you had your chance. You know, I, I thought this was an easy one. <laughs> so stretch out your hand. And the man does and it's whole. And the response of the Pharisees is, is really fascinating. Filled with fury or, or... Fear doesn't quite capture it, though. It's more an, of an irrational visceral, confused rage. They just, they sort of like, they just lose their minds. They just hate what Jesus has done. They hate it. Because they, they will not recognize in him the fulfillment of all that God has given. They, they hate him. They don't hate what he's done. They hate him. They hate the Sabbath, no matter what they say. And to me, then, this would also be, frighteningly, just one more area where the New Covenant Sabbath is greater than the Old Covenant Sabbath. If you violated the Old Covenant Sabbath, you died. But I tell you, if you violate the New Covenant Sabbath, you will die eternally. Because if you reject the new covenant Sabbath, that is Jesus. Then it is bodily and spiritual and emotional and mental death forever and ever. And so the glory of the new covenant Sabbath surpasses the old. But so does the penalty. 
This is always the way it is, old to new covenant. The glory gets greater, but so does the price of rejecting it. And so this then is puts the urgency into Matthew 11. Come to Jesus and find rest. Come to Jesus, take his yoke upon you. It is easy, his burden is light. You will, that is a promise, you will find Sabbath rest, the rest of God for your soul. But it is only in Jesus. It is nowhere else. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in the wilderness. As long as it is called today, you can enter into his rest. Well, may God help us to to appreciate that. Uh, to appreciate this gift of rest uh, that is in Jesus Christ. It may also help us to see, this is one of the things that's fascinating to me, is as you work through who Jesus is, he, to me, he just gets bigger and bigger and better and better as you go. Yeah. You know, so you always, you know, you knew he was a Savior, you knew he was the Lord, but you find out he's, he's all of these things, plus he's the Sabbath. You know, what, what else is he? Well, you... Just keep working through the gospel. The Lord reveals who he is sequentially bigger and bigger and better and better. Well, may God help us to have that response to to enter into Sabbath rest and to rejoice in the greatness of our Sabbath, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask your musicians to come uh, and lead us in a song uh, of praise and response uh, to our Lord.